This is Alex Mears. Uh, welcome to Search and Acquire, a podcast miniseries with Recon Labs that showcases military veterans who've acquired and operated small businesses through entrepreneurship, through acquisition, or ETA. Our guest today, Nick Van Dam, is the managing principal of Trophy Point Group and recently closed on the acquisition of Midwest CATV, a, a telecom installation and maintenance company, where he is now CEO and president. Nick has a fascinating background. Uh, after graduating from West Point, he competed on the U.S. national team in the triathlon, uh, followed by a combat tour in Afghanistan, where he was awarded a bronze star. Uh, and since leaving active duty, Nick earned uh, CFP while working as a financial advisor. He completed a master's in global management at Thunderbird, where he interned with a private equity group in Zambia and worked in both finance and government contracting. Nick launched a search in September 2020 and acquired Midwest CATV in April of this year. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Alex. Honored to be here. Humbled, I should say. <laughs> well, this is, this is uh, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly excited to have you on since you just went through the, the full search uh, and acquisition process and have now completed, uh, I think just in the last few days, your first 100 days as CEO at the business you acquired. That's right, Alex. Uh, coming up on the uh, actually, so technically it was uh, May we closed. So it's um, we're about three month mark here on the first, and then that is also true up on uh, on the on the deals. So it's it's a it's marked in my calendar right now. <laughs> no, that's that's great. So I mean, I, I love before we get into your background, you know, just given how recent the acquisition was. You know, oftentimes we hear from from entrepreneurs and searchers who who, who did this five years ago, ten years ago. You know, you, you you are literally within your first hundred days as the CEO. So we just love kind of your your initial thoughts on you know what's been most surprising or different for you about being a CEO. You know, in your first hundred days versus what you expected. Uh, yeah, I, I would say first of all, uh, what what I kind of think of this like is learning to fly an airplane. Uh, you know, I I'm trying to get my controls down. I'm trying to see my dashboard clearly, but every little turbulence right now is a little bit sh shaky. It's shaking me. I'm like, well, <laughs> is that a major one or is that a small one? And and then also it's a lot of uh, validating my investment thesis. Uh, or invalidating some assumptions I made, uh, and so there's been a lot of a lot of that, uh, a lot of good surprises, a lot of uh, not a lot, but some surprises that I didn't want to have, uh, yeah. and it's just really coming to terms. Okay, this is this is the company, this is the deal. You know, I I couldn't turn over every stone in the deal um, in due diligence, and uh, so. It's it's good. I mean, every day is, is I'm getting more confident. Uh, but I can tell you, the first couple of weeks, uh, I, I was I, I, I was questioning what I was doing. Uh, to, to be very candid, I, I mean, uh, you, you would be crazy if you were not. Like it's you, you know, I, I think it's a sign that you, I'm a rational person that I understand <laughs> gravity of what I'm doing. Uh, so um, you know, we're we're at a good spot right now. I mean every day a new challenge, but I, I'm kind of like, okay, I feel like I know how to deal with this challenge. Instead of the first week, I was like, what, what is going on? No, that's, that, that's great. And I, I have to say, I mean, I'd, I'd love to, you know, later go into some of the, the you know, what, what you've learned and what, what you sort of uncovered. Um, I, I have to say in, you know, two decades of M&A, I have never seen a transaction that 
the buyer wasn't surprised by at least one thing in the first few weeks uh, after the transaction closed. No matter how much diligence you do, it's just a very different situation when you're when you're sitting in the owner's seat and the CEO's seat. So, so we'd yeah, love to chat about to that. talk about that after we we can circle back into that. Per- perfect. So yeah, I mean, maybe just starting out, would love to learn more about your background. Kind of where did you grow up, and then how did you decide to to join the military? So I grew up in Minnesota. Grew up in Minneapolis. Uh, my dad was a retired Navy officer. Uh, he retired as an 05 out of Pensacola. We were living down there. He started flying for Northwest Airlines, and then we moved up to Minneapolis, and, and that's really where I mostly grew up. And uh, then went to military high school, uh, all boys, college prep, Catholic, military high school, uh, where I swam and, and got in a triathlon. And then... Um, Really, you know, my, my grandparents all were in the military, World War II. Um, my uncles went to Air Force Academy. My dad retired from the Navy. Uh, my brother had gone to Air Force Academy. So, uh, you know, it really just, it was kind of just the family thing to do is, you know, go in the military. And when I found out I could actually swim Division One at West Point, I was like, oh, that sounds like a great deal for me. Um, you know, fully admit, I don't think I understood what I was doing at that age. Uh, but it, you know, and I, I definitely wanted to leave often. Uh, but it was, you know, the best decision I ever made in my life to stay and grind it through. Uh, they kind of have the saying, West Point's a great place to be from, not really a great place to be at. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so your father as a Navy officer, was he heartbroken when you learned the news that you'd be going to West Point? No, no. Uh, you know, my, my dad uh, went to OCS. You know, my dad enlisted. And um, so my dad was not, I guess he didn't have enough college credits when he was in college. Uh, so he was going to be drafted in Vietnam. And he was like, well, I don't really want to go to the jungle. So I'm just going to join the Navy. And he ended up being a cryptographer, I believe. Got um, out of the tour, did the tour, and then. Um, finished school and then went to OCS to be a pilot. And then he was a pilot for 40 years. Uh, so, you know, he's just happy for me to have a great school to go to and they didn't have to pay for school. So I think that they were pretty happy about that one too. Pretty happy. No, absolutely. Yeah. And so what, what did you do? What did you do in the army after graduating? Yeah. So I did West Point and, you know, I started doing triathlon pretty seriously there and started getting pretty like pretty focused uh and made it into the national team for the under 23 guys uh right out of west point and then basically really did triathlon for the first two years two and a half years of my time in the army uh i made into the world-class athlete program and moved out to colorado springs and was living at the olympic training center for a while so i i mean i had kind of a non-traditional military experience um, my first couple of years, I was a first lieutenant and I was like, all I've done is triathlon. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> That's kind of unusual. Um, so did, did triathlon, um, up till I, I did pretty seriously th- through 2014, but 2011, I had a heat stroke racing in Japan, uh, not too far from where the Olympics are right now. Um, and it was in the end of June and it is so hot there uh at about two in the afternoon the sun's been up since 4 a.m and it's 80 percent humidity and it's 85 out and i i went down and 
was in the ICU for three days in a Japanese hospital where no one spoke English. Uh, then, um, then the army told me I had to find a real job in the army. And I was like, well, what, what is that? Um, all I've done is triathlon. Uh, so I ended up finding a job in logistics operations, um, in an S3 shop and got back in triathlon. I recovered actually had a great season in 2012. Um, and then a deployment came up to Afghanistan and, um, I hadn't deployed yet. A lot of my friends had, I, I was nearly a captain at that point. I was like, you know, triathlon's great, but all I'm doing is something for myself. Like really, it's just a very selfish pursuit. Uh, and I guess the bubble kind of burst in my eyes. And so when they need an extra officer to go to Afghanistan, I raised my hand. I was on, my, on the plane a month later. Uh, and in many ways, it was one of the best decisions I had made because it gave me perspective on the world. And it gave me, you know, kind of a drive to do something else other than just swim, bike, and run. Not that I don't enjoy that, but mm -hmm. um, there's more in the world. Absolutely, no, that, that's great. And, and after after Afghanistan, did you had you just sort of decided that would be it, and then you'd be transitioning yeah. out, or how did you think about the transition? You know, like a lot of uh, vets, uh, we find the most fulfillment actually in deployment, where you're actually given, I feel like, the tools and the resources and the authority to do your mission and to make an impact. So I, I had a pretty good mission. I was retrograding and shutting down a lot of bases there. Um, and then, you know, getting equipment out, doing a, really just a remote, you know, we, we did remote logistics. You know, we were embedded in frontline units doing kind of logistics support. Um, at that point, I, I just, again, wanted to do something else. I said, Man, there's a lot going on in this world, and the military is great, but I, I just felt like I had these, I just had a very small perspective of the world. Uh, so I, I decided I wanted to get out once I got back from Afghanistan. That's great. And, and how, how did you think about the transition? I mean, what, what, what sort of options oh, were man. you looking at? Where did you land? 27 year old Nick leaving the Army. All I had done was some operations and some triathlon. I didn't know anything about anything. Um, I loved Colorado. I said, yeah, this is a great place to be. So I was looking for opportunities and ended up in financial advising. I, and yeah, to be very, very frank, I didn't know anything about much. And I studied super hard. I took everything I learned in sport and triathlon and grinded through my series seven and 66 and passed my seven on the first go 66, a little bit harder. Um, but, uh, sunk my teeth into it and, and did very well. Um, I, I really started to enjoy it and I was like, wow, this is, this is, this is great. Um, but you know, I, I got pretty tired of just selling. Uh, I, it was a great job straight out of the army though, because it taught me something about finance, which is essential to our world. And then two, it taught me how to pick up a phone and call somebody. And that I think is the equivalent of knowing how to shoot your M4 as a soldier. Like you know, in business, you got to know how to pick up a phone, talk to somebody, and even more, even more so in search when you're looking to acquire a business. Exactly. I'm sure that, it's dire directly applicable to that phase. Yes. So you know, doing forty dials a day and getting told by a lot of people no, and you know, looking for contacts any which way I can. Um, that that 
that would tend to that, that helped me in my search in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So when when did you first learn about kind of search funds and entrepreneurship through acquisition? Was it was it during your time? you know, as you're preparing for the, the exams or how did you I, kind of learn about Yeah. It? So when I was a financial advisor, I got my CFP. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then funny enough, I passed my CFP and stopped doing financial advising. <laughs> I was like, I'm kind of just, I'm burned out. Uh, and I was working in some startups, uh, the total, you know, implosion on that field and really, uh, uh just, not not pretty, but but it seasoned me. It, it taught me a lot about people doing bad business, people not doing the right thing, uh, and that idea of doing a some a, some type of business from nothing, you know, starting a business, trying to figure out product market fit is is so incredibly difficult. Uh, and, and so that was one piece that kind of geared me away from trying to come up with a bright idea, uh, and then. I remember I was looking on LinkedIn or something, and it was, I want to say 2017, 2018. I, I saw a classmate of mine, uh, Brian Alvarez, and I saw him, I, and he, I just didn't know what he was doing. I'm like, what is he, the CEO of like a, what? He's the CEO of this boiler company? What is that? Um, and I, I was just kind of like, it just blew me away. And I just kind of investigated. I think I hit him up and I was like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. I just kind of put on the back burner. Didn't really think too much of it. Then I went to grad school, was in grad school, and there was a professor that gave a talk on kind of what he was doing in the local Phoenix market. He's like, yeah, I buy companies, roll them up. Yeah, I, and it was ETA. It, 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 he was an entrepreneur. He made some money and he was, this is kind of his investment strategy. He's like, yeah, if I see a, you know, a, a uh, you know, business plates or something on a truck, I go follow that truck and I find out where they are and I see if they want to sell. And then I go in there and I bring, you know, the senior manager and I put him as the CEO. And then I just kind of, you know, make sure the financials are good. And I was like, oh, wow, yeah, I've, I've heard of something like this. Uh, so that, that just got me ignited. And, and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to do this. Absolutely. I could do this. Uh, and, th- and that's what got me back into kind of going after, you know, the search model. That was uh, 19. That was a uh, fall of 19. Okay. And so you took close to a year then just learning yeah, more about I the just, model. I was in grad people. school yeah. trying to, you know, just figure out what I wanted to do. And um, yeah. so, yeah, that, that kind of talk um, really just lit the fire under me. And then I went to the ETA conference in Chicago. Uh, that uh, Northwestern and then Booth host together. And uh, before COVID, when we had in-person uh, conferences, <laughs> and um, really just, again, added a, you know fuel to the fire. And I said, like, wow, okay, these are normal people. These are people like me. I, I feel like I can do this. Met some vets, heard a lot of stories, started digesting every podcast I can listen to on ETA, and, and really just said, wow, these people aren't too different than me. Um, why can't I do this? So then, as you as you launched, you know, a search during COVID, correct? Yeah, yeah. So you know, when when grad school was done, I, I want I thought, well, maybe I could do a search right now. And I was like, well, I'm kind of broke, uh, and I have a little bit of debt, so maybe I should just go work for a little bit and then save my money and engage from a better position. Because you have so many biases 
if you're broke living out of your parents' spare room trying to just make it happen, like I, I would have I would have gone after anything just to, to get in a company. And and that would have been the worst, you know, recipe. So really I, I said I wanted to do a self funded search. The economics to me made total sense. And, and so I, I, you know, worked um out in LA for a little bit, just, you know, saved my money, kind of bided my time. COVID happened <laughs> and um, I finally got finally okay in my job and kind of learned what was going on. COVID settled down a little bit. And then I reengaged in September while I was working full time. And as a vet- veteran launching your search then, you know, during COVID, you know, what about kind of your military experience do you think was applicable? We'll start with the search phase and then we'll, we can talk, you know, the operating uh, and, and CEO phase later. Yeah, the, the search phase the biggest thing I'd say is the credibility. Uh, I actually people give you a little bit more time of the day. Uh, I, I would say there wasn't much like in hard skills I learned in the military that would transfer to a search, but knowing, you know, having that credential goes a long ways with a lot of people. And, and that's really what matters a lot. Like a broker may take you a little bit more seriously. Uh, a seller will look at your resume and like, okay, this guy, if he can do a deployment, if he can go to combat, I bet he can run this company. So that, uh, and, and the, you know, the guy I bought it from, I know for a fact, he gave me the time of day because I, I was, I was a veteran. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, you know, in, in, with all the searchers that we work with, it, it is surprising, not perhaps not surprising, but, but how often owners are, are one just very amenable to veterans reaching out. But two, it often is, you know, when, when we when we talk to veterans who, who, you know, successfully acquired a business, you know, that that was actually one of the, the sort of key things that they think, you know, sort of got got the owner comfort with getting over the hump and, and actually selling their business uh, to, to a veteran. So that, yeah. it, it's interesting to hear that was very consistent with your with your interaction. The, the trust aspect is, is mm-hmm. so important. And I think we. Sometimes you lose sight of that, uh, and I hear, and I know the sentiments of the seller far better now. Uh, and having that trust that this guy is not going to screw me over—that that's a big deal. That that's a mm-hmm. really big deal, and it's really tough to get around that because you can say all day long you're not going to screw someone over. It doesn't mean they're going to believe you. And what about on, on the other side? I know you mentioned, you know, there, there weren't a lot of directly transferable, you know, training the, or something like that from the military. Yeah, the what, about, what about gaps? Because we, we, we get this question all the time, you know, as a veteran looking to launch a searcher and then actively searching, you know, what, what were some of the gaps and, and how did you work to fill those with either, you know, outside advisors or, or yeah, doing work? Yeah, I, I knew I'd, I'd never done a deal. I never bought a company. I, I never, I'm not from iBanking or PE or, or, you know, I have some international PE, but the Zambia market's not the U.S. market. <laughs> um, totally different thing. Uh, and I, so I worked with uh, a partner on this. Uh, I worked with, I brought in a, a partner group, um, Eli Drucker and Adam Lev were kind of my, my key advisors. And I really worked with them from day one. And I think that, is the military side of me is to saying, I know my skill gaps. Like I know what I know and I know what I don't know. And I'm used to going out and finding the guy that knows something about whatever topic and then using that to make my plan. And, and that, you know, is, is a more awareness 
and and having a bit of a you know being humble uh because you've been humbled enough uh out there that you're like well i'm not gonna i I know what i don't know uh and and asking for help and you know having this team mentality and and that's really what i built with you know my my advisor group is saying hey let's we're gonna do this together and we're all gonna win and and that is that's the military in me like we go further as a team it's an it's an interesting model that that you sort of adopted with that right finding essentially you know a partner who who had more on the deal side and and the fact that you know would you sort of make that as a general recommendation to veterans pursuing search or or and just just more broadly you know in particular for the search phase any recommendations a couple people have asked me and uh i would say if i i'd do the exact same way again uh and it's yes i would advise that let's just do that i, I know plenty of people that can do it on their own and, and more power to them uh, and I respect that immensely, but I think the self-awareness to, to, to know that you're going to be overloaded. And I would confidently say, I, I don't think I would have completed this deal if it wasn't for the team I'd put together. I mean, it was like a knife fight some days, you know, I, it's like trench warfare at times I felt, uh, and I need a battle buddy in my foxhole with me. That's got my back and can, you know, be a sounding board if I need it. And, you know, just keeping level headed is extremely important, especially in the deal, especially when you like moved out of L.A., you're jobless now, you're in an area, you move for the job and, you know, the deal is on shaky ground. You're like, what did I do? Uh, So having someone that, you know, is on the outside to kind of help like, okay, let's just keep level head and just move forward and. And, and get this thing done. And very, very tactically, you know, what was your approach on actually going out on the, during the search phase, whether proprietary brokers, yeah. just any, any thoughts, just one on, on what, what you did and what you mm-hmm. found successful and then sort of more, any generalizable lessons for, for other veterans who, who are launching a search. Yeah. I, I was in the position where I was working and I was working till I didn't, yeah, I felt like I had some momentum is kind of how I put it. So I, I said, you know, I, I don't, I didn't feel I had the time or the resources to do a full proprietary search. I said, uh, let's just start with the broker model and just start feeling people out and start doing some reps, doing, looking at some deals and getting some people to respond to me and, and then see where this thing goes, kind of build up some knowledge about some different industries and see what sparked my interest. Um, so I, 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 I found the deal through a broker um, and, you know, that broker was immensely helpful. I mean, I, the deal wouldn't have happened without the broker because he prepared the seller. Uh, we also, also was, you know, at times, a, you know, a therapist to him through the deal. Uh, so I, I would advise using the broker model because I've talked to plenty of other, you know, vet searchers and regular searchers that don't that do a proprietary model and never find a deal. Because one or the other, they, they have a company that wasn't prepared. They, they didn't have, you know, their financials were just a mess. And it's like, I can't, I don't know what I'm buying. And it's a $30 million company. Yeah, it's not going to work. Um, so the broker model, yeah, you're going to pay a little bit more. That's just what it is. But if it's still realistic and it's still within the value range, 
and it's still fair market. I, I say we're in the business to get in a business and prove our value. We're not out there. I, I'm not Warren Buffett. Uh, and maybe someday, but not now. <laughs> so I, I would absolutely advise, you know, using the broker, but also any deal you can do, any leverage you can find, any network that you have, just go after everything. You know, if you're from an area and you're moving back, use that network. If you're, you know, that, that was a big deal for me, you know, coming back to Minneapolis, I had a lot of street cred with a lot of people because I grew up here. And it, it, it meant a lot to the, the landlord. It meant a lot to, you know, the seller, the broker, uh, the bank, I mean, all these people, it, it did add a lot of value. So I, I would, you know, advise like looking at things like, okay, where do I have the most credibility and where, where can I build the most immediate trust with the people I'm working with? Uh, is it from a certain network? Is it from a certain industry? Is it from a geographic location? Uh, and, and tap into that. And I would say, even if this deal fell through, I built so much credibility with a lot of people in the network that I would have found a deal pretty quickly because I was, you know, I, I, I got to know some of these accountants and these lawyers and the broker and all these people. So it, it really kind of was an insurance in, in some way as well. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you were you were geographically focused from the outset. That yeah, I, I, I made a short list of places I would be acceptable of moving to. Um, mm-hmm. And it's because don't look at anything, because if you don't want to live there after two years, that's going to be a rough place to be. Uh, yeah, there might be some amazing opportunities in northern Nevada. But if you have no if you don't like it there, if you don't know anyone, or if you don't have family, it's like. That, that, that's going to be rough after a, a couple of years. So yeah. I, I think you got to think long-term and it's like, where, where do I want to be? And, and then, you know, kind of back plan off that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, your, your experience, it's very interesting and very consistent with what we see. I mean, we, we, we always see, you know, either geographically or by industry, you know, relationships and knowledge tend to compound the more time you spend in them mm-hmm. when it, when it comes to, to deals. And it's just what you're saying, right? It's, it's the credibility with all the various parties um, that, that one make deals easier to do <laughs> with, with counterparties and two often just source new opportunities because of, you know, they know your name, they know who you are and they know kind of what, what you're, you're trying to do as opposed yeah. to a, a cold email. Right. Yeah. It, 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 it matters. Like it, it definitely matters. So, don't underplay that. I mean, you may not see it up front, but when the deal is hot and heavy and, and you have that little bit of extra credibility, that, that could shift the entire tide. And how many, how many deals did you look at before you found the one that, that, that you ultimately acquired? Not that many. Uh, I'll, I'll be completely honest. Uh, I, pro- I mean, I looked, looked is a loose term. Uh, I, I probably looked at a couple hundred. I probably look seriously at probably 20 and I pro and I only got, um, you know, less than 10 Sims. Uh, I got pretty focused on the telecom sector pretty quick and I had brought on a team to work with pretty quick because I wanted that like second set of eyes to tell me if I'm looking at something real or not and, and what we initially thought. Uh, and so I, I really took the sniper approach. I said, you know, I, I'm not here to, to shotgun blast. I'm here to, to hit something. And so if it takes some time to like look at less, 
but we have a good team assembled that has the knowledge to to know what is good and not, then I think that's that's better. That that's to me was more efficient. Um, mm-hmm. So you know we found this deal in really the last week of November, and they were accepting IOIs through mid December, and, and then we started you know really just running down the path. Uh, it started to look pretty attractive, pretty quick, and we were lucky enough to win the bid. And, and just in terms of how you actually found it, was it that you had a, a relationship with a broker at that point who <laughs> brought it to you? Was it you saw the listing and made a phone yeah, call? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, there was a there was a telecom company I was looking at in LA, and I was in LA, and I was like, wow, this could be interesting. It was kind of interesting. There were some good aspects of it, and then it just kind of unraveled, and it's like, okay. And that same day, I just said, okay, well, what else is in the telecom sector? I've spent a couple months kind of learning it and talking to people and getting to know it. I, I think there's a lot of good traits here. Uh, so I, I found a company in Minneapolis, uh, and I quickly just called the broker. I, I, I emailed him. I linked him message and called him. And <laughs> then he took me seriously. Um, and it was all over lunch uh, while it was working. Uh, and... You know, really just the Minnesota thing actually went a long ways. The vet thing went a long ways. And and he's told me that since. He's like, I, I probably wouldn't have taken you seriously if you weren't from the area and you weren't a vet. Uh, and, um, you know, just once we learned more about it, we, we were like, oh, wow, okay. You know, this is, this is pretty interesting, actually. And um, then, you know, I met with the seller right before Christmas. I, I flew back to Minneapolis. Uh, and and had an in-person meeting with him uh, during that trip, and then then subsequently got trapped in Minneapolis when I got COVID, and and couldn't leave for like three weeks, and then LA had its own quarantine for anyone coming back, and then I had another two weeks of quarantine, so that that was uh, the, the joys of deal making. Dur- the joys of deal making during COVID. Yeah. I, I had a lot of time. I mean, I was probably yeah. pretty. I was down for about a week pretty unhappy, but uh, I actually had some time to work on the deal. <laughs> yeah. And what, what did that, the first interaction with the seller look like? I mean, were you sitting down trying to explain what this entrepreneurship through acquisition thing is, really. or, or was it more, he, he had the context and it was much more just about understanding, you know, the personal fit and, and learning more about yeah. the business? More of just uh, feel each other out, ask some general broad questions about the company to spark a conversation. Uh, and not, I mean, explaining a little bit about what we were doing, but not going into the full deal. Uh, if I learned anything at Northwestern when I was, you know, um, at a financial advisor, Northwestern Mutual, is that people like to talk about themselves and just ask a lot of questions about them and the company. And, and that usually is a good recipe. Um, it was right before Christmas, and, and actually my, my dad came with me because I, I didn't know what to expect. I, I was like, well, Dad, why don't you come on with me? I, we haven't seen each other in like a year because of COVID. And, you know, this is why well, I am coming back here. Uh, so, you know, if I'm moving back here and doing this business, then, you know, family, it, we're all going to be kind of part of this in a little way. Uh, so I, I brought my dad. That's great. That's, I think that's the first I've heard it in, the, uh, in an initial meeting with the seller. That's great. I, I, I thought it was... A, Definitely a bit odd, uh, but 
it, it really was trying to show that I'm not a big bad private equity fund. I'm not. Yeah. And yep. just yeah, you're, you're, you're an outsider coming in. I, yeah. I'm just a regular guy uh, yeah. that wants to run your business. No, that makes sense. And so with this, I'd love to hear more just about the business. You know, I mean, obviously we mentioned that it's it's in telecom, does yep. maintenance services. But can you just give a, a you know, brief description of, you know, what the business actually does on, on a daily basis yes. and for what customer set? Yeah. So we have two divisions. Uh, one side is cable. The other is tower. So cable side uh, will pretty much touch everything in the telecom network minus drilling underground holes. Uh, we'll put fiber in the holes, in the ducts. We'll string aerial cable. We'll put fiber to the home. We'll do, you'll do maintenance and repair uh, all over the Twin Cities. So, you know, we've been doing that work for two decades now. Uh, we do, we pretty much service, we go about eight hour drive away from the Twin Cities. It gets us to, you know, half the Dakotas, uh, Wisconsin, Iowa. And, you know, we'll do cable maintenance and repair. We'll string new cable and fiber uh, for whatever people need. Uh, that would be new build or, or maintenance. Uh, our customers, uh, you know, anyone that has a broadband network, to be honest. So Comcast is big around here. Uh, Lumen, formerly known as CenturyLink, uh, and uh, Mediacom, Midco, um, and then, you know, other customers a little bit smaller, or we have, you know, we kind of work through subcontractors. But, you know, we have a, a very distinct competitive advantage in our aerial cable game is that you know, not a lot of companies have a robust group of guys or crews that can handle large projects and, and we can. So you know, a lot of, lot of, we have a lot of customers because everyone needs to use us in some way, shape or form in the larger projects. So that's the cable side. Uh, tower side is very different, um, but still telecom. So we upgrade and maintain uh, cell towers. So when, you know, new 5G, you know, radios and antennas go up, we, we go up there with tower climbers and put them up. And, you know, pretty straightforward there, to be honest. So we service towers all across the upper Midwest. Uh, we usually go out for, could be five to 10 days to do an upgrade. Uh, you know, we'll do some structural work at times, but most of it is what's called line, you know, line antenna. We're, we're stringing new antennas and radios. And when you were doing diligence, how did you think about the mix between, you know, some project revenue or sort of one-time revenue, it sounds like, in terms of new projects or expansion versus just the more kind of recurring nature of either the maintenance services? Yeah. Uh, I thought it was a good balance, honestly. It diversifies the customers, which I really like. That's the hardest thing in the telecom sector is the customer concentration risk. Mm -hmm. And it, it's because you have... But there's only so many people that own broadband networks or, or cell phone carriers. I mean, there's there's very limited. Uh, you go to Verizon, you can go to T-Mobile, you can go to AT&T, and now Dish is working on their own their own network. And that's pretty much it. That's where all the money's coming from. And then there's the subs, you know, the turf, the sub, they, they kind of the crown castle. They'll do work, but they have their own, you know, the AT&T could be there or Dish or whoever. Uh, and, and then you have, you know, uh, the, the tower owner, the other tower owner. So there's a lot of different customers maybe, but at the end of the day, there's only so many sponsors. If I kind of use the, the government contracting terms, 
Uh, and then on the cable side, it's, it's different, which is nice, which is different kind of core uh, sponsors and core customers. Uh, so it's, it's a nice balance in, in many ways. Uh, they're, they're different business cycles, though. Uh, upgrading towers, though, I mean, we're upgrading towers every couple of years. I mean, we'll put a new up radio and antenna maybe up there every five years, seven years. I mean, yeah. So there's just a, there's a natural refresh cycle that that makes it almost recurring. Yes. Right. Or, and, or and, and we're not stopping at five G, are we? We're not going to be like, yeah. okay, yeah. world, we're good with five G. <laughs> Let's just not do any upgrades. No, no, yeah. no, no, no. Uh, Nokia's yeah. not having that. Uh, the the you know, um, Ericsson's not having that. AT and T's not having that. There will be six G. There will be seven. There will be all of them. Mm-hmm. And so physical pe- people will need to physically go up to these towers and put new antennas and radios. I, I cannot think of a way that that is going to get truly replaced. Uh, a robot's not gonna do that. Not any time in our lifetime, uh, but but that is somewhat hazardous work too. I mean, it's it's not safe climbing up 300 feet in the middle of winter. And so it takes a certain type of person to do that as well. So now that limit is your pool of, of guys willing to go up there. So. It, it is a very interesting business, I, I, will, mm-hmm. I will admit. And, and it's it's very akin to the military, right? Like the military has this danger factor. I mean, we're in combat. Uh, we're in training grounds that are dangerous. And so there's a lot of similarities in a lot of ways. Like safety is paramount, very much like in the military. So I, I, I like those parallels just personally. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the cable side still can be very dangerous. Um, because we're climbing up utility poles and we're dealing with, you know, we're close to the power, which can be dangerous as well. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's more construction. It's, it's less technical. It's more smaller jobs. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a good balance. It really mm-hmm. is. And how did you get comfort with, with that? You know, just the, the safety culture, given this particular business, as you said, you know, there, there are very real physical risks associated with, you know, climbing up these towers and, and, you know, stringing wire, how did you kind of get comfort indulgence? And then I would love to, you know, yeah, post acquisition. Yeah. Are there things that you identified that you're working on today in terms of you know building out the safety culture or, or any? any totally admit that that's probably one of my weaker points in due diligence. Um, I didn't have a very good way to dig deep in there, especially not coming from the industry. And and that's, um, I was happy to see that people are pretty safety conscious. I mean, saw it in the safety record, right? The the, the history speaks for itself. You can look at the workers' comp. Uh, you can look at the EMR and know, okay, you know, there aren't like big, you know, people aren't falling off towers. Uh, by the way, the company wouldn't be in business anymore if that was like, that was happening. So, you know, I, I, I saw some factors that would lead me to believe that they're pretty safe, uh, but it, it's, you know, they don't have a formal safety program or 20 person company. So you have to be comfortable with some of the risk. Uh, but knowing that if I come in, I, I can do that focus and, and make that very important. And I've actually found a lot of interested applicants just because I've been, you know, kind of preaching the safety aspect. Mm-hmm. And, and have you realizing you're, you know, three, three months in, but has, has that been something already that you're, you're focused on or, yeah. you know, either building out the program Absolutely. or. I, I was even contemplating just hiring a safety manager, um, but. Mm-hmm we're not really at the size to where that would financially make sense. And that, and that, yeah. and that comes to a question. It's like, well, at what point does that financially make sense? Uh, we're a small business. 
we still have to make money. The overhead is not beneficial. You know, we need to be conscious about being safety, but also making money. And, and that is, that's something I don't learn in the military. I will be completely mm-hmm. honest. Uh, and that's why I'm in the seat I'm in now, but I've consistently told my company and, and very, you know, to the, my core believe this, I don't want to run a, a tower division if we're not safe. Like mm-hmm. it's just a matter of time until someone's going to get hurt or someone could die. And that's not something I want to have on my conscience or have a, a company with that stain. Uh, so at the end of the day, you know, we're doing it safe or we're not doing it at all. Mm-hmm. No, that makes a lot of sense. And so maybe circling back to where, where we started in terms of just your, your learnings in the first hundred days, I'd love to hear oh, what, yeah. what was, you know, what, what else was different, you know, versus what you thought in diligence and both, you know, there, yeah, there are always yeah. both positive and negative surprises. So I would love, so, love to hear both. Let's start with the negatives. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, safety, I probably could have been more methodical there. But again, that's some of my knowledge gap. So I guess I didn't realize that the true revenue driver of the company are the foremen. That is how you put more crews out there. That is how you bring in more fresh new guys. You need good foremen that are going to stay and that have been here a long time and that want to stay. And that is probably something I didn't identify until the first week. And I was like, oh, I get it. I get it now. Uh, so, so that do, do you think that's something you could have identified in diligence? I mean, oftentimes I mean, things I like that, that can be culture. I, I, mm-hmm. I did realize that, but the gravity of that mm-hmm. it was lost. I, I didn't yeah. quite put that together. How the skill of the foreman matters tremendously, and that is what drives a good team. So that you know, really, I, I, I just I know now. So I, you know, um, and, and then the training aspect, like how do you bring a green guy in and get them trained? Uh, so that, if I was going to redo it again, I would, I would ask, I would focus a lot more on what it takes to be a trained in being alignment or a tower tech. Like, what does that look like and how long does that take and how much does that cost? Uh, and that's going to drive how fast you can grow and expand. Like, you know, think of it like if I looked at like a office cleaning business and they're all over Twitter and, and they're great business models in many ways. Uh, but the barrier to entry for a new office cleaner to clean that office is very, very low. Uh, and that's a good, good in one way that you can take generally anyone off the street. Um, but you're also having to deal with minimum wage problems and there's a lot of, stuff going on at a minimum wage. So, so some of these factors, the labor, the training, I, I, I didn't appreciate as much mm-hmm. as I do now. My, my KPI is interviews. That's my KPI right now because I know mm-hmm. that's what drives. And, and so are you seeing that? I mean, we, we do see that with especially some of these very technical, when you're using you know, very technical labor like this, is, is that side the, the limiter on growth for you at this point versus the customer side? Yes. It's, I, it's all I, I, in my experience, people always focus on the, on the customer and the market in diligence and forget that actually for a lot of these businesses, really the limiter is, is actually finding the, the right people with the technical skills to support the customer demand. Yes. Yes. I, I would 100% agree. I was so focused on the customers and not as focused on meeting the demand of the customers. And so there's plenty of work out there. I, I, I can keep up. Uh, so, 
you know, these, the, the, the guys are, are everything. And I, you know, I knew that from the military, but it, it's very different when you have a PL and a balance sheet next to you. And so as you look at your, your first few months, you know, oftentimes you hear do no harm as, as the first, which is something I always strongly recommend yeah. as well for a first time CEO stepping in, you know, now as you're, as you're, you know, leaving that, that, that first hundred days, how are you kind of thinking about, it? are there improvements? Are there systems you want to put in place? Yeah. Um, and beyond, obviously we, we discussed safety, but be just more generally kind of business processes um, as you, as you look, you know, now that you're a little, you know, more comfortable in the seat uh, right. and looking to put your, your stamp on the and, business. And, and I will say do no harm. Absolutely agree. Uh, it is an interesting balance on coming in and how you need to inspire some credibility. Mm -hmm. You need to inspire some confidence. So you can't be totally quiet and you can't be just totally passive behind, you know, just sitting there. So you have to have some ideas and you have to have some vision or people are like, what, what's going on? Like who's, who's in charge. Um, and so, yeah, do no harm and keep everything the same, but really things are going to change and, and you really need to come in and, inspire people and, and want them mm -hmm. as your CEO and have confidence where they're going to leave. They're going to leave. And, and that was something that I, you know, we've worked through here is that I didn't come from telecom and, and that the confidence side is a very big deal. So be very careful and coming in the first day and saying, I don't come from this sector. I, I I'm here to learn from you all uh, because that could be interpreted a very different way. And I, if I could redo it, I probably would do it differently. Um, but you know, we're, we're, you know, I've been here every single day, all the time here when people show up here, when people leave, making sure everyone sees my, my car, uh, mm -hmm. my face, uh, doing the rounds, talking to the guys. Um, so do no harm. Absolutely. But you, you do, you do need to make a mark. You do need to make a yeah. presence. You, you make yeah. sure they, they know you're here and that there, there is going to be some change and some people want that change. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, like be honest, be straightforward. Uh, yeah. Hey, you're going to be a paid. We're doing the same work. Benefits aren't changing. Everything stays the same, but I have a vision here and we can be this great company and yeah. that's what I'm here to do. No, that, that, that's great to hear. I mean, one of the other sort of flip sides of the do no harm that, that we often recommend and we see a lot is is trying to focus on quick wins as mm -hmm. ways to address some of what you're talking about, right? Which is that need to actually establish credibility early on, but to do so in a way that's not disruptive to the business or, or the employees. But so I'm curious, did you have any, any um, luck with that? Yeah, I mean, I bought some stuff for us. I mean, uh, some stuff that they had wanted. I mean, the first morning I was there, I was like, hey, can we get a Tommy gate for this truck? It really hurts our backs lifting this compressor. And yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, absolutely. Okay, yeah, we'll look at that. Uh, it's like, can we get new trailers? I'm like, uh, we'll look at that too. Um, can we get new all this? I'm like, whoa, 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 let's, let's all down. Um, but yeah, I, I was very focused on, on doing anything I can do to just be on the field and go to sites and, you know, you know, take out the trash to, you know, replace a light bulb to fix something that, you know, needed attendant to just, just anything. And, and absolutely. And, you know, more importantly is just being here, being present, being, uh, available, you know, and, and, uh, 
you know, grinding through these guys, you know, mm-hmm. these, my crews work super hard. They, okay. They're here at six, six thirty, and they get back into the shop at six. Uh, and we work emergency call for, you know, Comcast through, you know, we have one week rotations. The emergency call is emergency call. You're there within four hours at, at the most. So we get called very often. Uh, and so that, that's, that's a lot. And you know, we work weekends because we have a lot of work. So you, you gotta be there. You gotta be with the guys. Yeah. And, um, that's what I learned in the military. I was, I was just going to ask, how did that, how did those first few weeks compare, uh, to being, you know, a new second Lieutenant in, in a platoon? I guess. So that was part of the problem. <laughs> um, I, it was, it was a lot. Like I, I no no joke. I mean, I, there were some days I was, you know, I have a bit of a commute right now. Um, and, and there were some days I was like, what am I, what have I done? Did I do the right thing here? Uh, and it, it was, um, you know, little bumps and, and, you know, now I, I see that we do very quality work and that I do see that we have great guys and that we do the right thing. And, and that's what inspires me, you know, to know that we have a great company because we put out a great product. So little bumps in the road are going to happen, but, um, it's it, you know, I, I also see the tailwinds in the market. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this infrastructure bill, I'm, I'm very happy about. Uh, but in my mind, I'm like, where's the labor for that? Because I can't really find a lot of labor right now. So how's that going to work? <laughs> uh, so first hundred days of what I've learned is uh, your first hundred days is proving and disproving your investment thesis what you're going to be, there's going to be some stuff that you assumed and you now are been proven wrong, uh, and get grips with that. And there's going to be some stuff that are pleasant surprise and, you know, just, just whatever reality is, find that out and find that out quick and then be there at the company, meet everyone, have those small conversations, um, Take take guys out, you know, get a beer with them, be there in the morning, get, you know, walk around and, and talk to them and and build build a vision. Like, I know we need to work on our back end operations. We're still operating on paper. Like, we have a lot of paper running around. And I don't I do not like that. Uh, I, I want to optimize our back end so that we're better at tracking what crews are doing, where guys are and, you know, reporting our work uh, to our customers. Uh, so that, that's a big focus right now. Uh, our trucks are, are pretty good, but I'm definitely going to start looking, you know, we have one lease coming next month and, um, it's sharp, too hard to get bucket trucks too. So start pulling mm-hmm. ahead and, and thinking a lot on how we retain guys and how we build a culture that, that we attract and retain the best, the best foreman and the best, you know, guys, I'll admit, like I lost a guy last week. He got called up by the union. The, the power union guys that work for Excel, $35 an hour to start. He's 20 and a pension and all these other benefits. I'm like, I, I, I can't compete like that. That's, mm-hmm. that, that. that's really good. And I'm very happy for you. And I told him that um, if you want to work on your free time and come on over, sure. Um, but you need to go do that. Like that's, that's an amazing opportunity, man. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and have you, have you, have you gotten to the point where, you know, the recruiting function can be so critical and just managing that pipeline and how to, how to interview, how to select, 
have you kind of gotten to the point yet where you're really working on that or, or is that I'm still something, something you've identified and it's, oh, yeah. it's, it's sort of on, on the road now? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm thinking we, we need to think on how we're training our guys. We need to be more methodical about that. Uh, and we need to just put the right vision in these guys' head. And, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm going to do a couple things. One is I, I have been reading a lot about the great game of business model and how to build a culture of transparency and to instill that as, as a game of business and to build incentive and compensation around those very black and white metrics, which are financials. A lot of people get very scared around revealing financials. I totally understand that. But I truly don't believe people wake up in the morning trying to say, how do I you know, con my company out of more money? Uh, I think it's an education process. And I think you got to start off small and you got to start off smart and then just work towards it as, and then start to build this, this very black and white, you know, hey, our scoreboard are the financials. Period. You're not getting a big bonus because look at our scoreboard. We didn't hit our goals. And and that, everyone knows that. Everyone knows sport. Everyone knows there's a black and white. And we don't have it. I don't have another scoreboard to use. Uh, so I am gearing towards that and, and how to do that intelligently and smartly. Uh, is, is The worst thing that I could do is just vomit everything out. Uh, so it's, it's going to be a process. But we have a small company, and there's no reason why we can't teach everyone what they need to know to understand this all. You know, you show top line, but then you explain all the costs and all everything that goes in there, and people get it. People, it's, it's not that hard to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's one big aspect. And then I also want to make sure that everyone gets a, a little bit of the pie of the company. Uh, and, and that's going to come from me and, and my allotment because – Everyone should. Everyone's working hard to make this company great. And, and that's coming from the military. That, that's, it's teamwork. You know, we all win together and we all lose together. You know, everyone you know, succeeds in a mission because we did it as a team. And it's not just the officer at the head of the formation that gets the medal. And it's not just the officer that gets the, you know, the credentials. And what I learned was always you know, defer to your specialist to recognize them. Hey, it's not me. You know, look at this specialist and this sergeant that kicked butt all of the deployment. Uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I had an impact, but those were the guys doing the hard work. And, and that speaks volumes that you're always deferring to your subordinates as, as the real winners, uh, as the heroes. And, and, and that's just kind of the same way I think about, you know, making sure everyone has a piece of the pie. If, if there was an acquisition down the road or a recap or whatever, you know, I want I want these guys to, to have something. Well, I, I w- we'll definitely have to check in in a year or two, and I'd love to, I'd love to get an update on as you're as you're rolling that out because that is something we found to be incredibly powerful in small businesses. And so, would love to would love to hear how how yeah. it goes and 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 the response from the employees and and you know how it impacts the financials as well. Yeah, I I think it's the right thing, and and that's why I'm in the CEO chair, right? Uh, yeah. And that that's been one of the harder points, and uh, I'll say that it's like, hey. You're in the CEO chair, and and you got to develop confidence, and and you got to drive forward with what you think is best, and that's why you're in the chair. Uh, and you you don't have those right and left limits that you had in the military with your boss and your senior raider and all those people. Mm-hmm. Now it's, hey, 
you, you got brought on by your investors. You got brought on because you found the company. But at the end of the day, it's your decisions that are going to make this company great. And you got to be true to yourself and what you believe and be genuine. So build the company like that. That makes a ton of sense. So, so to wrap up, I have to ask whether it was in the search phase, whether it's been in your the, the operating phase, you know, as you look back at what you didn't know <laughs> when you first started, you know, pursuing search uh, and, and acquiring a business versus what you know today, what's one piece of advice that you would give to a veteran in that situation who's, who's interested in, in pursuing ETA? That uh, I think veterans are the best suited to do this type of work. Uh, we know so much and we've had so much experience with, with people and with problems and with managed chaos, which is the business at times. Uh, and, and don't be afraid to just dive in and just start. doesn't matter where you start. Just start. Start learning. Start talking to people. Start reading a book. Uh, there's so many podcasts out there. There's so many books. There's so many people that are willing to talk to you uh, and give you this friendly advice. And the search funder community is just is so fantastic. People are so just this abundance mentality. And, and so I, I, I think it's one of the best opportunities for, you know, anyone that, that wants to be an entrepreneur that wants to, you know, kind of, you know, sink their teeth into something and, and, uh, just, just get going, just, just start. Uh, that's great. And I, I, I can't agree more. I mean, even more broadly, just the search community. I mean, it truly is a community. And people interested can reach out to anyone in that community, former searchers, owners. Yeah, I do a couple calls a week. Yeah. Uh, people reaching out, I'm happy to talk, happy to share my opinion. Uh, it's all yeah. my opinion. It's a grain of salt. Uh, I'm not right about everything at all. Uh, but, but hey, we live in this age that we didn't have in 2000. 2000, there wasn't YouTube. There wasn't like podcasts. And now you can learn to almost do anything. I. Mm -hmm. There's amazing platforms out there that are totally free. Uh, if you want to learn how to raise capital and do a venture capital fund or a PE fund or ETA or whatever, it's all at your fingertips. Uh, so I learned a ton by listening to podcasts. I would go bike out in LA and back, I'd run on the treadmill. I just listen to podcasts about ETA all the time. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. Well, Nick, look, really do appreciate your time. Realize how busy you are uh, in, in these first days uh, with, with the company. So really do appreciate it. And, um, you know, we'd love to have you back uh, in, in a year or two and, and, and get an update on how uh, everything is going. Absolutely, Alex. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for the opportunity. And, uh, you know, anyone out there that wants to chat with me, I'm always open to it, to a phone call. Okay. All right, Nick. Well, thank you again.